Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. I've got one of the greatest stories in British history to share with you today. It's the story of the 1745 Jacobite Revolt when Charles Edward Stuart, Bonnie Prince Charlie, attempted to seize the throne of Britain from his Hanoverian cousins. And ladies and gentlemen, he came close. This week, when this episode's first broadcast, it's the middle of August 2021. But this week in 1745, Bonnie Prince Charlie raised the royal standard at Glenfinnan, on the banks of the beautiful Loch Shield, surrounded by several hundred Highlanders, including Cameron of Loch Eel, Bonnie Prince Charlie raised his royal standard, his flag. They shared a brandy, and they set off on a campaign that would take them deep into England and come closest, probably, of all of the Jacobite uprisings to regaining their ancestors' thrones. Charles had landed. He launched his desperate venture with only a handful of supporters in Eriksay, an island in the Outer Hebrides, at the end of July 1745. And as you'll hear, a mixture of gold, personal charisma, and loyalty to their ancestral ruling family drove many to support him when he landed on the mainland of Scotland. I am lucky enough to be joined on this podcast by the very, very brilliant Murray Pittock. He's a professor at the University of Glasgow. There is nothing, nothing about this period that he does not know about. This was a brilliant, brilliant, comprehensive survey of one of the most dramatic uprisings in British history, 1745 to 1746, ending with the terrible defeat on the field of Culloden and Bonnie Prince Charlie's escape through the Highlands to a waiting French ship. If you wish to see my excavation or my disinternment, I think it is, I don't know what it is, we opened up the coffin of a man who was said to be at the Battle of Culloden, one of the last great Highland lairds, the old fox, Simon Fraser. He was the last man to be beheaded in Britain for treason. He rebelled against George II, took the side of Bonnie Prince Charlie in 1745, 1746. I went to his family chapel, I opened up his coffin, and we checked if there was anyone in there, with or without a head. To find out what happened next, go to History Hit TV and check it out. If you subscribe to historyhit.tv, you can listen to all these podcasts without the ads. You can also check out one of our hundreds of documentaries, like The Rise of Hannibal, everyone's watching at the moment, How He Crossed the Alps, or My Adventure in the Highlands, when I attempted to find the body of Simon Fraser. Lord love it. It's all there on historyhit.tv. If you get a subscription today, you get 30 days completely free of charge. Head over there after listening to this brilliant podcast with Murray Pettick. Enjoy. <music> Murray, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Pleasure. Good to chat with you, Dan. Jacobites. It's a word steeped in history. Take us back to Body Prince Charlie's grandfather. Just remind us quickly, who were they and what they want? Well, the Jacobites technically wanted to restore the main Stuart line. That is uh, James VII and II and his successors, his son, grandson, which was who was born of Prince Charlie, and his other grandson later on, who was Henry, though there weren't many left by that time. But the key issue really was that was the least of what they wanted, that actually Jacobites from England, Scotland and Ireland all tended to want rather different things. Those from Scotland and Ireland had desires that were more or less compatible. Those from England were not compatible with either of them. So there were significant issues about what the Jacobite agenda really was. In England, it was linked to xenophobia, distrust of a German royal house, the exclusion of the Tories from public office and what you might call country values, dislike of finance and the metropolis, which is certainly with us still. And in Scotland and Ireland, 
It was really, in its different ways, linked to the restoration of the multi-kingdom monarchy under the later Stuarts and the greater autonomy that Scotland had enjoyed before the Acts of Union of 1707 and Ireland had before the promulgation of the Crown and Parliament Doctrine, which subordinated the Irish Parliament in 1720. And 45 is the most famous Jacobin uprising, but in a way it wasn't an uprising that looked like it would have much chance of success when it began. Tell me, this young prince, how did he manage to put together this expedition and head to Scotland? And why was it something of a terrible gamble? Charles Edward was seen as the best hope of the Jacobite movement from the 1730s onwards, because he was clearly outgoing, charismatic, and had early military experience. In fact, it's 1734, when he was only 13 or 14. So he was the obvious candidate to lead any rising. France prepared a major rising in 1744, but there were plenty of leaks about that rising. There was good espionage and intelligence for the British government, and indeed the French ambassador seems to have leaked details of the rising himself because he wasn't very keen on it. So the French invasion of 1744 collapsed. An infuriated Charles, who had been waiting around for months for it to sail, decided to launch a rising himself using money which was provided by a Jacobite banker in Paris, Aeneas MacDonald. And he got two ships, the Elizabeth and the Detail, and sailed in them to Scotland with originally 200 men in the Irish brigades. And those 200 men in the Irish brigades are important because it was probably a French crown deniable special op rather than a purely private venture. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been French regulars going with him. But the ship, the Elizabeth, with all the men in and all the guns in, was so damaged in an exchange with the British man of war, HMS Lion, that it had to go back to France. So Charles actually arrived with only the legendary seven men of Moidart a few of these commanders and senior advisors, no guns and no men. And for a while, it really looked as if people would not fight for him. But he overcame that partly by charisma, partly by appealing to youthful supporters and partly by early military success. So by the time the standard was raised at Glenfinnan on the 19th of August, 1745, there had already been two successes in skirmishes, small military engagements, with British forces in the north of Scotland. And the Jacobites were feeling that confidence that comes from being on a roll. And that roll, of course, carried them right through to Edinburgh, to victory at Preston Pans, and to Derby, where they turned back, although even in retreat, and after the Jacobite army had retreated, further victories at Falkirk and Inverurie showed that they remained a formidable fighting force. But Derby was, of course, the critical moment and is still one of the great what-ifs of 18th century history. Oh, we'll come on to that extraordinary what-if in a second. But, Mike, can I just ask, there was considerable sympathy for the Jacobites, for the Stuart family across the three kingdoms. Well, it was by that stage two kingdoms, Ireland and Britain. But there was this sense that they would only rise if a French army arrived to help and yet the French were like, well, we're not going to go and help unless there's a significant domestic rebellion. So it's just a weird catch-22 situation. That certainly was a significant element in weakening the Jacobite cause, that the French wanted to see the colour of Jacobite money before they would come, and the Jacobites wanted to see the colour of French money before they would rise. The French government was on the brink of sending forces in 1745, and largely the retreat from Derby 
combined with poor intelligence on behalf of the Jacobite army, led the French not to invade. Had the French invaded, it was always the French intention to use the Scottish and Irish troops in the French service as the main regulars who would land. I'm not sure they were entirely right in their assumptions that Irish troops in the French service would be entirely welcome in Essex, but they thought that would be preferable to French regulars. Talk to me about the young man himself, Charles Edward Stuart. It was a very, very daring move to arrive in Scotland at all. And why did he go to the west coast of Scotland? And how, when he got there, was it personal charisma? Was it money? How did he persuade those first few men to come over to his side? He landed on Eriskay in July 1745, largely because the west coast has got more islands and it's more difficult for the Royal Navy to patrol. The sheer strength of the Royal Navy is a major factor in the rising, which is often overlooked, and evading them was a big challenge for the Jacobites. So he landed there. Initially, he was told to go home. Traditionally, Rannoch MacDonald, the younger of Kinloch Moidart, who was a younger brother of the chief of the sept, not the chief of the whole name of MacDonald, but the chief of that particular group, said that he would draw his sword even if no one else would, which shamed his brother into agreeing to fight for Charles. That gave him a couple of hundred men. A few more hundred came in, especially after his forces won those early two victories against Geysers and Swetnam's regiments in the north of Scotland. And at Glenfinnan in August 1745, there were about 500 or 600 men, and they waited and waited. And late in the afternoon, Camel of Lochiel arrived with two battalions of Camerons. Charles had talked him into this beforehand, but it was still 50-50 whether he would come or not. And what Charles offered him has always been unknown, but probably what he actually got subsequently, which was command of a regiment in the French service in the case that the Rising should fail. Anyway, when two battalions of Camerons arrived, Towards the end of the afternoon, that was the signal for the start of the rising with about 1,200 men at that point. Charles moved rapidly southwards, a move which he was helped in by the fact that Wade's roads, which had been built in the 1720s and 30s to make it easier for British troops to reach the north of Scotland, actually were also very useful for helping Jacobites reach the centre and south of Scotland. They cut both ways, those roads. That's the problem with roads. Lochiel is said to be one of the last great sort of Highland lairs, and you say he arrived with two battalions. Why were the Highlands still an area in which private military companies could still be maintained deep into the 18th century? Well, it's certainly true of the north of Scotland, the Highland parts of Scotland, but it's also true of other parts of Scotland too, that there is a tradition which was in retreat by this period, but had not disappeared, to effectively commute cash rents for service to the major subtenants in time of war that was widespread throughout Scotland, effectively a feudal settlement with considerable power in the hands of the feudal overlord, rights in terms of their powers of regality, of life and death over their dependents. And figures such as Athol, the Duke of Athol, had a fighting tale, a total military force, probably between three and 4,000 men, and that was the largest they got. The uh, Duke of Argyle, chief of the name of Campbell, had about the same. And then there were chiefs of the name. I use the term because rather than saying chief of a clan, the Duke of Athol is chief of the name of Murray, but is not normally thought to be a clan family, even by people who think of clans. 
And there were plenty of other Scottish noblemen, for example, Lord Lewis Gordon, who in no way would ever be thought of as clan leaders, who brought people out on this kind of hold over them, if you like, feudal hold over them. But they also raised significant numbers of volunteers in the fishing ports and the East Coast boroughs. So the total number of men who at one point or another fought for the Jacobites is about 14,000, of whom about 1,000 were recruited in England. Roughly 1,000 to 1,500 were troops in the French service, and the remainder were Scots. And was taking up arms on behalf of your feudal, I use the term carefully, but your feudal lord, was that still the norm in this period? Was there still internecine violence? No, there wasn't internecine violence because it's quite possible to have a feudal system without internecine violence. But there was the relics, if you like, of a feudal system. And I have to say that helped subsequently to recruit the Highland regiments in the British service from the Seven Years' War onwards because the tradition of local magnate power, the tradition of men volunteering in return for considerations of land, that was taken advantage of by those who recruited in the 1750s. So, for example, we see Simon Fraser, Lord Lovett, who was executed in 1747. He raised 1,200 men, three battalions, the whole of the fighting tale of the House of Lovett in 1745-6. And his son, who was present at Culloden but retreated to Inverness and promptly defected to the victorious British forces when they entered Inverness, he raised a similar number of men, slightly less, 1,100, but almost the same number of men, to fight in his regiment in the Seven Years' War at Ticonderoga and on the Plains of Abraham and elsewhere. So it's actually a structure which, although the British government had changed the law, had removed rights of regality, those traditional loyalties still held in the later 18th century. They were very useful to the extensive recruitment of Scots into the British army all the way up to the end of the Napoleonic War. So you've got this force now. There's some early successes in the northwest of Scotland. When is the first big test? Is it outside Edinburgh at Preston Pans? Preston Pans is the first major battle. So the Jacobites enter Edinburgh. Probably the gate is left open for them at the Lord Provost Archibald Stuart's connivance. He was certainly tried for it and acquitted on the not proven verdict. And then they know they're going to face British forces very shortly. And they do at Preston Pans on the 21st of September, four or five days later. I think what happened there is that General Cope took up a very strong defensive position. The Jacobites were able to make their way into a position where they could compromise that defensive position and render it a bit of a death trap, especially since they were seriously underestimated as a force. You have observers from the British army noting when the Jacobites advance at Preston Pans, eyewitnesses saying that they're advancing in line, they're advancing on a drill pattern, and they're not just having a wild rush with sword and hand was expected. So they underestimated them, which led them to actually commit the cavalry too early and to fire the artillery too soon. So in committing the cavalry, they thought the cavalry would drive them away and it didn't. And they committed the artillery. And by the time they'd fired one round, the Jacobites were on them. And that was it. I mean, this is pretty shocking stuff. It had been thought that modern musket and bayonet armed infantrymen fighting in close-packed ranks would be able to deal with irregular troops, so to say. I mean, what is it about the Jacobites in this and subsequent battles that makes them so potent? Well, if they say that actually the battlefield archaeology shows, as indeed the records show, that more Jacobite musket balls were fired at Culloden ahead of 
their army than were fired by the British army that day. So I think one of the things is that there's still a popular view, which isn't really accurate, that the Jacobites fought with swords against guns. They didn't. They were pretty well armed. Not as well armed at Preston Pans they became subsequently, but they were armed with musket and frequently musket and pistol too. The front rank carried swords because they were the officers leading their men, and that's exactly what would have happened in the British army until considerably later. So actually, there were, generally speaking, fewer swords in circulation in Jacobite units than there were firearms. First of all, so they're better armed. They're actually drilled. Quite clearly, some Jacobite units had been domestically drilled anyway, but they received largely French drill training. There's some mixed drilling later on in the campaign because at Chelsea Pensioner Arbroath does some drilling, which includes the British drilling system. But they largely drilled on the French pattern. But with that, they combined the last minute rush and onslaught, having loosed a volley at about 50 metres before the final charge with pistol and, if in the front rank, sword in hand. So they were very effective and they acted like a quasi-regular unit while having some surprising tactics, which made them very difficult to deal with. Also, the British Army changed its whole tactical system for musketry in 1748, part in response to the 1746 Rising, because Bland's military regulations, previously, the battalion you fought in was not the battalion you fired in. Companies between battalions were mixed to create what were called firings, so that different firings lined up in different parts of the line from mixed battalions to fire at the advancing forces. First of all, that was something which actually diluted the effectiveness of units. And secondly, it was used to being used in a firefight situation with continental forces, not a dynamic situation where you get one volley fired at you and then there's a charge. We could talk about mid to late 18th century musketry drill all day here, Murray. You're among friends. I've got to ask you, I've got to move on sadly. Speaking of continental warfare, just quickly remind us all that part of the problem is that there was a war going on and this was extremely inconvenient for the British government at this point. And Britain was somewhat denuded of troops. Well, it was. And of course, the reason for striking in 1744 and indeed in 1745 was to take advantage of the fact that the War of the Austrian Succession meant that a large number of troops were on the continent. And some of them had to be brought back. And as a result of them being brought back, the French were able to capture Brussels. So Marshal Saxe's capture of Brussels netted France about five times more in booty than they actually spent on the Jacobite Rising. So on a pure cash return basis, it was a really good deal, 1745, for the French government. So yes, it was a situation where there were many troops being deployed on the continent. And of course, one has to remember that the armies at this time, if I say the British army, that is what it was, but armies at this time were not national forces in the way they became. There were a large number of Hessians, Hanoverians, at some point, so that they later withdrew Dutch in the British service. And these forces were regarded potentially as less reliable and more vulnerable. And in fact, the Hessians decided they wouldn't fight with Cumberland at the latter stage of the campaign because he refused to have a prisoner exchange system set up with the Jacobites because they were to be treated outright as rebels and the Hessians wouldn't have it. So it's a more complex coalition than a single military force. And in a way, the rising of 45 replays some of the aspects of the War of the Austrian Succession because at Fontenoy in January 1745, where a last minute attack by the Irish brigades had led to French victory, Many of those in Cumberland's first line at Culloden had fought at Fontenoy, and many of those facing them had fought at Fontenoy on the French side. So Cumberland, the 
younger son of George II, and I think probably favourite son, he's rushed back to Britain, is he, with his forces? Yes, he is, because Wade, who is at Newcastle, is very old. He's got a lot of men, but generally speaking, whenever he leaves Newcastle, he finds the weather's a bit adverse and decides to go back there. He was not the right person to combat a dynamic rising. And it's getting quite dynamic because what happens after Preston Pan? So Scotland is now sort of under Jacobite control, though amazingly, Edinburgh Castle holds out, doesn't it? It does hold out because fundamentally it starts bombarding the city. The commander threatens to carry on doing that to the Jacobites attempt to take it. So they pull back. So there are pinpricks which governments retain control, but Scotland is effectively Jacobite. Now, at this point, there's a big decision to make, isn't there? Is this where the tension between the Stuart family who wanted to regain the thrones of all Britain, Ireland, Scotland, England, whole works, and some of the Scottish supporters said, look, just be happy, we've retaken Scotland. Is this a period of difficult politics now? It is a period of politics, though it has to be said that on the 10th of October, Charles Edward announced that the union between Scotland and England was null and void, and this is a standard part of Stuart policy. So in that sense, they're all on the same page. But the issue is that Charles always sees the restoration of the three kingdoms, as were ruled by Charles II, as the key goal. And he also sees that Charles I failed in the conflict of the 1640s by not taking London, not advancing on London after Edgehill was a fatal error. And Charles really thinks you have to advance on London. A lot of his supporters, they don't think so. And it's widely feared in the British government that they'll recall the Scottish Parliament, declare a separate Scottish kingdom, and ask for a French army, as indeed had happened in the late 1540s and early 1550s when England invaded Scotland, a French army was brought in precisely to protect the country. But Charles has his way by one vote and they march into England. Strategically, he's absolutely correct. There isn't any way that they would have been able to hold out in Scotland because the sheer amount of credit that the sophisticated financial markets of London could generate could keep on bringing more troops till the cows came home and they'd come home pretty quickly if you didn't try and take London. In desperate straits, the boldest plan is usually the best. And so Bonnie Prince Charlie was probably right, I guess. Now, he chooses, not unsurprisingly, the other side of the country from where Wade is in Newcastle. He moves down to the west of the country. And Lancashire was thought to be quite Jacobite, but are they disappointed with the number of English volunteers they receive? Yes, a lot of the commanders are disappointed. And Charles possibly is himself, though he leaves no record. Rather more than we now identify joined, probably... There were about 300 on the prisoner lists or known in the regimental list. We think probably up to 1,000 joined. But the important thing was that people didn't realise that England was not nearly so militarised a country as Scotland was. The numbers that Charles got were actually very similar to the numbers that Charles II got on the way to Worcester in 1651. In other words... <laughs> The major problem for English Jacobitism was really that people didn't want to fight. And that was what you might call a great English habit that went back all the way to Bosworth because, you know, Richard III couldn't get anyone to turn out either. Except in periods of serious ideological conflict like the 1640s, people in England just didn't want to fight. And they had a good survival instinct in that respect. Well, there was that wonderful expression from later in the 18th century, isn't it? Somebody said the Brits are prepared to fight to the death of the last Austrian or something like that. So they arrive, very impressively, they march down, they get to the Midlands, they manage to wrongfoot the British army, and they arrive in Derby. And what happens there? Well, in Derby, Charles wants to go on and most of his council of war want to go back because they haven't received assurances from the French. We know the French were very close at this point. 
But as I say, the intelligence wasn't good enough to bring the two efforts together in a way which synchronized them. And they're concerned about the lack of recruits and they fear that there are more forces facing them again, poor intelligence, than there actually are. So at the point at which they retreat, there are approximately 1,000 to 1,500 men at Finchley, a mixture of the train bands and a few regulars, the Black Watch being the most significant force, but the Black Watch being kept down there because it's not trusted because of its mutant in 1743. So there's not much doubt they would have walked into London and defeated the force at Finchley had they marched on. The question is what happens next. You listen to Dan Snow's History Hit. We're talking to Professor Murray Pittock about the 45. More after this. Hi there, everyone. I want to tell you about a podcast that I think you'll like. It's called Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. It's narrated by my good friend and host of American History Hit, Don Wildman. On Mysteries at the Museum, Don travels across the US to find objects that tell shocking stories of American history. You'll hear about the portrait linked to the first bank robbery in American history and about the failed invention from World War II that became one of the most popular toys for kids. Uncover the secrets behind these incredible objects and learn about the history of war, science, crime, and everything in between. You're going to love this podcast all about the remarkable objects in our treasure houses that are museums. Please go and check it out. Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. Is this one of those occasions in history where everyone always wants spies to play an important role, and often they don't, but is this a moment where disinformation, deliberate disinformation, does play a role in the decision of the Jacobites to start marching back to Scotland? Well, there is this line that it did. I have to say one has reason to be sceptical because the Dudley-Bradstreet line that he persuaded them there was a third army between them and London is something that he put to the Duke of Newcastle in order to try and get more money out of him when he felt he wasn't being appreciated a few years later. There's not very good evidence for it except what he says himself. So you can't rule it out. But I know some historians have put a great deal of weight on that. And I think the evidence doesn't really support it. They were definitely anxious that there might be forces facing them. But whether they were critically moved by Bradstreet or Bradstreet was even in the Council of War, that's a different matter. I'm glad to hear that, Murray. I've always found that story of the double agent who rocks up and tells him it's a secret English army and everyone goes, it's too neat, it's too James Bond, doesn't quite work for me. So, okay, good, I'm glad you say that. Now, so, Bonnie Bishoy, reluctantly, at Derby, they head north. How reluctant is he? Is he furious, outvoted? This can't be a pleasant... I mean, you know, the Stuarts always had a oft-lamented proclivity for divine right monarchy. This kind of an easy thing for him to have to swallow. No, and he doesn't like it. I'm not sure he's a divine right monarchist. Charles is rather more of an enlightenment figure, one of the reasons that Voltaire was one of his key supporters. But yeah, he doesn't like it. He doesn't like it one little bit because after all, whether or not he's an enlightenment figure, not only is he the heir to the throne, but he thinks a critical mistake is occurring. And also, unsurprisingly, they know that forces have landed in Scotland and those forces are exaggerated. So there is a second Jacobite army building in Scotland, partly recruited locally, partly coming in with Lord John Drummond's Ecossois Royale and Irish forces who land in Montrose in the late autumn of 1745 and subsequent French reinforcements, again, using their Irish troops. But it's not nearly as many as people think when they talk about it at Derby. The march north, what is there left to do now other than try and escape the encircling British troops all arriving back from the continent? What's the plan at this point? 
the plan is to return to Scotland and regather there. You see, the tragedy is that although many people have supported and think great things of Lord George Murray, Lord George Murray was a very, very good tactician and was terrific at retreating the army. But Charles is a better strategist. So a lot of his commanders, including Lord George Murray, think that somehow it'll be like 1715. You can just clear off home and everyone won't bother too much. Or if you have to fight, there'll be some possibility of reaching an arrangement. In other words, they're looking to get closer to home because they feel more comfortable there. They feel more comfortable fighting on home soil. And they feel that should they lose, they can go home. But by this time, he'd already said this at Macclesfield, Cumberland was determined that they shouldn't go home. Charles does his best, if that's what you would call it. He gets them to delay from marching out of Preston to try and get Cumberland to catch up with them so he can fight them. But in the end, he's forced further north. The advance guard of Cumberland's army does make contact with the Jacobites at Clifton, and there's a skirmish, which is really a score draw, probably, but in which there's a lot of conspicuous bravery. And Cumberland's cavalry commander, Oglethorpe, can probably catch up with the Jacobites at other points. But Oglethorpe has got two Jacobite sisters, is a closet Jacobite himself, and was not the right man for a very, very speedy cavalry chase of the Jacobite army. Yeah, the Clifton Moor skirmish. It's a sort of trick question to what was the last battle on English soil. It's often said we sedge more in the 1680s, but I think, you know, it's Clifton Moor seems to tick all the boxes. So they head back, they arrive back in Scotland. What happens now? There's a curious period of jostling in Scotland before the final showdown. Initially, Charles wants to control central Scotland. He gets, though they don't enjoy giving him it, quite a bit of material support from Glasgow in the new year. And then two weeks later, in central Scotland, his forces, the largest Jacobite force to take the field in the 45, face the British army under Henry Hawley and win again. That appears to be a critical moment where, despite the fact they're not successful in their siege of Stirling Castle, despite the fact that Edinburgh was back in government hands, the Jacobites have won at Falkirk and Charles wants to consolidate his grasp on central Scotland. At this point, Murray starts to exaggerate the number of desertions and claims that only by retreating north will people come back to the army. They do retreat to Creef, and at that point, Charles stops trusting Murray altogether because he finds out the desertions are much fewer than advertised. This is when the last stage of the campaign begins and effectively the Jacobites move further north. Some of their units carry out guerrilla raids in Aberdeenshire and as far south as Perthshire, designed to discomfort and dislodge British forces in those areas. But Cumberland spends a long leisurely time in Aberdeen drilling his army and then moves slowly north. There's a popular argument his bayonet drill was critical, but actually there are far more important things he does ranging from the fact that he knows when he gets to Culloden to hold his cavalry back, not to deploy them too early. He knows the importance of cavalry on the wings, and from the beginning he always wants to encircle the Jacobite army using those cavalry. Instead of providing a very long front, he produces strength in depth by having overlapping regiments cover the regiment in front in case they're broken by the Jacobites. And even when advancing to Culloden, he uses the innovation relative innovation at this stage of the kettle drum by having 235 kettle drummers announce this march from Nairn as a kind of riposte to the pipes, thundering the announcement of the British army who can be heard for an hour before they reach Culloden and therefore meant to be a weapon of terror. In other words, he's thought it through very carefully. 
before we get to the famous incident about Metnen and the battle itself, just quickly, let's just deal with the myth. Or is it a myth? You mentioned that the people of Glasgow were pretty unwilling to provide support and succour to the Jacobite army. Is it anachronistic to think of this in terms of a Scotland-England matchup? To what extent is identity part of this? And were there vast numbers of Scottish troops fighting on the British government's side? That's a very important question. There are certain things which are very interesting about it. One is that it was widely viewed as a Scotland-England conflict. In fact, if you look at regimental histories, I was just looking at the Hampshire regiments the other day, saying among our successes would be in the involvement of our troops in the defeat of the Scottish army at Culloden. It was viewed as a Scotland-England conflict. The monument at Culloden says, a monument to the Highlanders who fought for Scotland and Prince Charlie. Even a film like the 1948 Prince Charlie with David Niven has a clear Scottish message. Alastair MacDonald of Kepoch speaks to David Niven and says the country's dying, he dies under a saltire, all the rest of it. Very, very clear. And then in the 1960s and 70s, there's a really a, a move towards describing it as a civil war, which has intensified. I have to say that there's a very interesting correspondence between the traditional narrative, which is the belief that it was the battle that cemented the Union, it ended a particular phase of Scottish history, and it created a unified Britain, which is the old narrative, with the fact that this narrative becomes rather difficult to sustain if there's a live movement in Scotland for constitutional change or independence, which means that the Civil War narrative starts to rise up because that's the way of reinterpreting it. Because if you start speaking a Scotland v England fight, help, you're allowing it to be taken over by Scottish nationalism. So that's the history of how the battle's been remembered. What is it in fact? Well, it's a conflict where there are quite a number of Scots who oppose Charles Edward though there are not more Scots who fight in the British army at Culloden than on his side. There are about half as many. We have the muster rolls. But there are clearly quite a lot of Scots who oppose him. On the other hand, the Jacobites are committed to changing the constitutional arrangements between Scotland and England, ending the 1707 Union. And we don't have a single record of the Jacobite forces carrying the Union flag at any time. So it's pretty clear that they saw themselves... There's a contemporary map by a French officer, probably in the Irish brigades, the Irish pickets, which just says L'Armée Ecossois, L'Armée Angloise. They saw themselves as a Scottish army. They paid under the old Scottish army rates prior to 1707. They raised taxes under the old pre-Union tax system. They saw themselves as a Scottish army. Some Scots did not agree with that. But it's not a dynastic conflict. It's a constitutional conflict of which has dynastic elements. And that's why... It's not like the Wars of the Roses. That's why it's still very powerful, reverberating myth history to this day. Well, we're, we've arrived at Culloden. We've already gone way over time here because it's a wonderful story. We may have to do a separate whole episode on Culloden itself. But is Inverness the last significant city in Jacobite control? Is there an element of Prince Charles not wanting to become a kind of guerrilla force, but wanting to maintain an army in the field with territory and a base of supply? Yes, I mean, I think it's very important. Not enough good military history about Culloden. And quite simply, Charles's army was not, as I've indicated earlier, quite as able to carry out guerrilla campaigns as people might think. It was, in many respects, as quasi-regular and sometimes a fully regular force in terms of the units it had at its disposal. It had got its remaining supplies at Inverness. It needed to protect Inverness as its base. It didn't really have an option. It couldn't pay its troops. And it was in serious straits. People were not going to forage on the land 
in order to have a romantic heather and mist campaign in the summer of 1746. It wasn't an option. Again, interestingly, you mentioned Charles being a better strategist. In a way, he launches a night attack on the British army at Nairn, which in a way was probably his best chance of success, right? Because they were heavily outnumbered and outgunned by this point. Hungry, perhaps slightly demoralised. Was that his idea to launch that very risky night attack? It wasn't solely his idea. It was an idea that he was supported in because it broke a potential impasse between where Sullivan wanted to fight the battle and where Murray wanted to fight the battle, which was fundamentally to treat over the Nairn. And also because, as you say, it seemed the best chance. One of the things that went wrong was they set out too late. And one of the reasons they set out too late was not because they were lousy timekeepers, but because it was the middle of April and the Royal Navy was sitting in the Murray Farth with telescopes and they could see the Jacobite army. So not until it got dark could the Jacobites effectively leave where they were lined up, which wasn't actually where they fought the next day, but where they were lined up at Culloden. And whereas some of them almost made it, the French regulars in particular and some of the other troops found the way hard going and just couldn't cover the ground. So really, without street lighting and roads, it was always going to be highly risky. And of course, neither of those were in evidence. And I guess the problem with those kind of attacks is you risk everything on this night attack. If it fails, like Monmouth Sejimor, as we just mentioned earlier, you end up with a misfiring night attack. None of you have slept and your enemy can engage you in battle the following day, which is exactly what happens. Exactly what happens. And most of the men, and many of them don't even get back. And some of them are killed while they're still asleep by Cumberland's forces as they advance. But they gather around Culloden House, because that's where most of the food is, and where the command post is, and they fall asleep in its grounds. And then when they line up on the field, they have to line up relatively quickly. They don't line up where they'd be mustered the previous day. And the right cannot see the left, because there's a significant upward and then downward slope there. And the large front that they put out, and they only had a very thin second line, which is one of the problems, but the large front they put out meant that the command on the right couldn't see the command on the left. We'll just quickly talk about the battle. There's the most extraordinary charge on the southern flank. The Jacobite army smashes through the first line of the British army. Is there a point at which it could have gone the other way, or was it very one-sided in the end, despite this temporary crisis in the south of the line? It probably couldn't have gone another way on the day. It wasn't, however, a turkey shoot. The two things are, first of all, one of the things that the second line of the British army did when barrels was broken by the Jacobite attack was to fire cohort mortars into the front line. So there quite a number of barrels forces died of friendly fire, quite probably. And the casualty figures are probably lower, almost certainly lower, than those who were actually killed on the day. On the other hand, Jacobite units got clean away if they stayed in order. That happened. Both battalions of the Forfarshire Regiment and the McGregors both kept full order and they got off the field. Nobody wanted to tackle them. In fact, nobody tackled the McGregors all the way back to Perthshire. And on the other hand, the British Army wasn't able to encircle the Jacobite forces. They failed to actually envelop them. So there were a number of failures on the day, but the basic problem was that the Jacobites were outnumbered two to one. They were extremely tired and they couldn't coordinate the charge across the front line because the right hand and the left hand couldn't see each other. 
and their second line was nugatory. They did some sterling fighting. There was a prolonged firefight carried out by Franco-Irish and other troops in the latter stages of the battle. But basically, it was simply allowing people to get away. Once the front line had failed to carry the day, there wasn't any way the Jacobites could win. And there wasn't any way the front line was going to carry the day because that front line was outnumbered by the troops facing them by three to one. And the cavalry advantage carried by the British army was even more substantial in proportional terms. Donald Cameron, with the Lochiel that we mentioned at the beginning, the great laird whose support was so vital, was carried off the field by his men, shot through both ankles, one of his descendants once told me. What was the fate that awaited many of those that escaped? Tell me about the vicious counterinsurgency that the British then launched across the... Pacification is the euphemism that the British launched across the Highlands. Cumberland had already planned to just simply kill people in order to intimidate them, and there's good evidence of that in the Cumberland Papers. For some, it was obviously in the heat of the moment, revenge of fallen comrades and whatnot. But in Cumberland's own mind, there's plenty of evidence he'd been planning this for some time. So about a thousand Jacobites were killed on the day. The day afterwards, people were shot and bayoneted on the field. Deserters were shot on the battlefield. There was a later event when a number of deserters were shot in the middle of London, about two dozen of them, to war any potential English Jacobites. A number of Jacobites, including a colonel in the French service who got involved in the wrong unit, were burnt alive in a barn. And there followed extensive harrying of the countryside and Jacobite areas. And following that, Cumberland initially thought it would take six weeks. But the very interesting thing about it is that the army required to be in Scotland for more than 10 years and also were engaged in the whole of Scotland. There's a really interesting story to be told there, which I'm in the middle of beginning to tell about things like the introduction of cricket and the rotation of troops and places like Linlithgow and Parth. It was a long-standing problem, which didn't in the end go away until the war of 1756-63. And Jacobite units remained in the field, particularly in parts of the north of Scotland. So repeated references to Highland thieves and raiders in army records are often, if you look at other records, references to significant bands or bodies of armed troops attacking positions. So it's a very interesting and compelling story. One of the things that needs to be said, though, straight away, is that Cumberland wanted to transplant the populations, and that was frowned on by Pelham and Newcastle and Westminster. It was actually in England, in London, that Cumberland was first remonstrated with at a masked ball in May for why there had been no wounded among the prisoners among the Jacobites, also very few wounded. Most of those, again, were in the French service and therefore were going to be released on cartel in exchange for French prisoners. The Butcher's Company cartoon of Cumberland as the Butcher first appeared in December 1746 in London. So actually, it's in London, the first signs of real, I mean, of course, people hated it in Scotland too, but the signs of public distaste are there from a very early stage. And Cumberland, although he kept credit in the army and in some areas of politics, it's significant that apart from being Chancellor of Trinity College, Dublin, Cumberland really held no significant governmental office ever after Culloden. He was tainted goods. And I have to say that that was something which was a situation created in London and also by British officers in Scotland. There was an officer of one of the regiments who went to the Scots magazine offices in Edinburgh and gave them significant evidence of atrocities. So it wasn't normal for the time. And it wasn't something that England backed against Scotland. Cumberland was an outlier and people did find him too savage. 
What one can say, though, is because he maintained his credit in the army, the Grand Arrangement, the forcible deportation of the Acadian populations in uh, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia and Maine, the French Canadians, to stop them presenting a military threat to British forces in Canada, although most of them were peaceful farmers anyway, that population transplantation came out of and was executed by some of the same officers who supported the transplantation of Scots in 1746. So there is a legacy in the British Empire to what Cumberland planned to do. But in Scotland in 1746, it was quite speedily seen by a number of governmental authorities in London as just too much. And as Duke of Newcastle said, the Scots deserve the protection of the laws as well as everybody else. And then Cumberland unfortunately went on and commanded an army at the beginning of Seven Years' War and made an absolute bulls up against the French at the outbreak of that war in Hanover. Anyway, let's just quickly finish off Bonnie Prince Charlie for me. He escapes in a sort of highly romantic and exciting way across the Highlands, gets onto a French ship and makes it back to France. It's all a bit sad, though, the rest of his life, isn't it? And, and is that now the end of the Stuart claim, is it? It is, fundamentally. It should be said that France intended in 1759, the attack at Quiberon Bay and the battle at Quiberon Bay was with a view to restoring the Stuarts. And as late as 1795, the directory proposed to the United Irishmen that Henry be landed in Ireland to be king in Ireland in the event of French troops as they did joining the 1798 rising, but the United Irishmen told to get lost. <laughs> Basically, the Stuarts ceased by the middle of the 18th century to be a realistic proposition. But it had a huge effect on global history because had the Stuarts won, then there would have been a, a rapprochement like the under Charles II between Great Britain, which would be a multi-kingdom monarchy once more, and France. There wouldn't have been a fight to the death in 1756-63. Therefore, the American colonies might not have become independent because they'd have been surrounded by French troops. France wouldn't have been so financially extended, so able to deal with the agricultural crises of the 1780s and avoid the revolution better. And that meant, of course, there would have been no Napoleon who might still have a Holy Roman Empire. Crikey, crikey, that's pretty good. Look, if you take away the 1756-63 war, and of course, British victories were significantly down to the use of Scottish troops, particularly in North America. The British victory over the Jacobites made a huge difference to world history, but a Jacobite victory could have made even more because of the significance of the 1756-63 conflict to everything that came after and the fact that France didn't have the financial instruments to run the kind of national debt that Great Britain could run under Pitt. I could not agree more. The Seven Years' War, everyone, you've heard me say it before. It is the crucible of the modern world fact. Murray, that was an absolute tour de force. Thank you so much for coming on. Tell everyone what your book is called. It's Culloden, published by OUP in 2016. It's currently in Amazon for £13.65 or less for the Kindle. And I'm sitting in front of the illustrated version, which the Folio Society are bringing out later this year. Brilliant. I have a copy. I'm looking at it on my shelf on my 18th century set of shelves now. It's a beautiful book. And please come on to talk about your next book, of course. It sounds like it's fascinating as well. So please come back on when that publishes and tell us all about that. Great. OK, thanks. I feel we have the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Thank you for making it to the end of this episode of Dan Snow's History. I really appreciate listening to this podcast. I love doing these podcasts. It's a highlight of my career. It's the best thing I've ever done. And your support, your listening is obviously crucial for that project. If you did feel like doing me a favor, if you go to wherever you get your podcasts and give it a review, give it a rating, 
obviously a good one, ideally, then that would be fantastic and feel free to share it. We obviously depend on listeners, depend on more and more people finding out about it, depend on good reviews to keep the listeners coming in. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.